In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, it's me, Alan, again. Remember, this show has explicit content, and you should limit your consumption of loud music. You're going to damage your hearing. Listen to discretion is advised. I'm going to be reading from the coroner's report, and this is not the easiest thing to read. That's Alan Sachs again. He spent years trying to unravel the mystery of Peter Ivers' murder. On March 3rd, 1983, beat cops responded to a call at 321 East 3rd Street. They arrived to the sixth floor loft in an old warehouse building in downtown LA, not far from Skid Row. A Mr. James Tucker discovered his neighbor, Peter Ivers, in bed, covered in sheets and a quilt with blood splatter on the wall nearby. Ivers was lying in bed in street clothes, no shoes. There was a pillow over his head, which obscured a zigzag laceration on the right side of his forehead. The medical examiner called it a bludgeoning. He was pronounced dead at 1547 hours. Cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. The last time anyone saw Peter Ivers was the night of March 2nd. He was at the cave recording New Wave Theater. And then he dropped the bombshell. He was quitting the show. He and David Jove got into a huge argument, and then Peter got into his car and drove off. The next day, Peter was discovered dead in his loft. Whatever happened, we know that he made it home, and he probably died in his bed. But there is a lot more we still don't know. That's partly because Peter's case file is still sealed to the public. But there's another reason. 
important evidence might have been corrupted, destroyed, or taken before the cops even secured the scene. So today, we're going to try to piece things together ourselves. We're going to talk about the scene of the crime, who was there, what they saw, and what it all meant, and what the cops did or didn't do to solve Peter's murder. I'm Penelope Spheris, and this is Peter and the Acid King. I was supposed to go over to his house, to his um, loft, and, um, but I, so, you know, it was raining. I called, and he wasn't there, and he ordinarily would have been there at the time I called. So I, I didn't go because I didn't know what was going on. This is Ann Ramis. On the morning of March 3rd, she's supposed to get together with Peter, but she can't get a hold of him. So Ann starts to worry. It was very unlike him not to let me know what was going on. You know, even if this car had been some, had some trouble, you know, which it always did, I know, he knew me well enough to have called me. She tries to go about her day, but before long, she's worrying again. It was raining, raining, raining. Um, and I thought maybe because of the rain, you know, there'd been an accident or something. So Anne calls Jim Tucker. He's Peter's next-door neighbor, and he actually worked on New Wave Theater, too. I asked if he'd seen him or anything, and he said, well, the car was out there. And that was a shock, I mean, that he would be there. He wouldn't have gone anywhere, and that I wasn't hearing from him. So I told him to go check on Peter, and he said, do you have any reason to think that there's anything wrong? And I said, yes, because he hadn't called me. And, and then he came back. And he said that there was blood all over the wall. And, and I said, call the ambulance, call an ambulance right away. Anne, alone in her home, freaks out. And then I called my friend in New York, Anne McConaughey. And I gave her the number and I said to call, because I, I was just like, you know, flipped. And uh, she called to find out what happened. She called me back and told me that he was dead. And I remember saying, are you sure? You know, I mean, like she's in New York and I'm asking her if she's sure. And uh, I mean, you, don't, you can't believe something like that. It doesn't make any sense. All right, let me go back a little. Here's what happened. Jim enters Peter's sleeping area to find Peter covered in blood and his head smashed in. Whoa. He immediately calls the cops. But it's not just the cops who hear about it. All over town, phones are ringing. Franny Goldie is waiting for Peter at a recording studio, but she leaves after he doesn't show up. When she gets home, she has a voicemail from Peter Rafelson calling me frantic, you know, call me the minute you get home. I knew from the tone of his voice and 
the urgency that something was terribly wrong. I just remember calling him, falling to the floor, blood-curdling scream, and I just, I couldn't stop. The reality was hard to face alone. Many of those who knew Peter, they just wanted to be with each other, to be with people who understood what they were going through. And the idea that Peter could be dead was just too hard to believe. So people started heading to Peter's place. David Jove is the first one to get to the loft. After Jove, it's out of control. Ann and Harold Ramis show up. Paul Michael Glazer, who played a cop on TV. You know, Starsky from Starsky and Hutch. People just kept coming. And the crazy part is, a lot of these people get there before the police. The cops are taking their sweet time. The only thing I know about the crime scene is that it was chaos. That's Joan Renner. She's a writer who studies the history of crime in Los Angeles. The police didn't arrive until after people had been traipsing through it, so they weren't able to secure it immediately, which is what they like to do. So it was chaos. Once that crime scene is compromised, that's a tough one. You just can't, you can't get that back, you know, and that makes it really difficult. One of the people there was Peter Rafelson. He saw firsthand how chaotic it all was. I had driven around the back and I spotted David Jove, who was hiding around the back. I just remembered that there was a back door that led to a stairwell that was supposed to be locked or whatever, but nobody was there. And I went in there and I found David. He told me to come with him. We went up a few flights of stairs and literally at eye level, we could peer down the hall from that stairwell and see what presumably was Peter Ivers' dead feet covered in a sheet and cops and homicide investigators everywhere. And I was like, David, you know, we, we got to go. We got to go. We're, we're not supposed to be here. This was bad. Here's journalist Stephanie Mendez. She's reading some excerpts from a 1985 L.A. Weekly article about Peter's death. The detectives allowed friends to secure or check Ivers's car, let Robbie Green take away one of Ivers's briefcases, which included his diary, and didn't keep the molding around the loft door, which had been jimmied. A second team of detectives later had to retrieve the molding from the trash. One of the things that goes missing is the bloody blanket that was covering Peter's body. That's a pretty damn important piece of evidence, and it just disappears. Are you kidding me? Where the hell did that go? We'll come back to that. Anyway, here's the basic facts of the crime scene. When he died, Peter was asleep, or at least in bed. He was in his street clothes. His shoes were off, and the lights were on in his room. And I got to point out, this isn't that weird for Peter. He often slept in his day clothes and with the lights on. He was a quirky guy. Here's what else we know. There was no evidence that Peter fought back. There were no traces of drugs or alcohol in Peter's body. Some of Peter's crazy clothes had been tossed out of suitcases and thrown all over the floor. Some audio equipment was stolen, 
but a lot of other equipment was left at his loft untouched. And there are some other details that can't be confirmed, like the door that was supposedly jimmied open. Well, in a later interview, Lucy Fisher said that the door had actually been left unlocked. But what really gets me is according to the people who went to the loft, they were the ones pointing out clues and evidence to the cops. Here's Stephanie Mendez reading from LA Weekly again. Barry Farr says it was left to him to point out the Jimmy loft door. And David Jove says he was the one who noticed a large luggage tag from one of Ivers' suitcases lying in the doorway, whereupon a policeman picked the tag up and put it in his pocket. Eventually, the cops begin to interview people of interest. Some of them are Peter's close friends, who are still in shock. For starters, Franny Goldie gets called in by the cops. I remember there were some phone calls from the police. Um, They wanted to talk to me. They wanted me to come down to the loft. And I was terrified. And I remember this guy, Stuart Kornfeld, took me. He said, I'll take you. Because I, I, I was shaking. I couldn't draw. I couldn't do anything. Stuart takes Franny over to Peter's loft. And I went with him to the loft. And just knowing that he had been killed in the other room, I was horrified. Can you imagine yourself in this situation? You've been asked by the police to meet them at the place where your friend has just been found dead. It's heartbreaking, and it's definitely not standard practice, by the way. And they were asking me, do you smoke? I was like, yes. They said, are these your cigarettes? Yes. And I had been with Peter the day before at the loft at some point. And I guess because they were fresh from the day before. Were you here? Did you see anything? Um, I, of course, right away went to, are they thinking I did something? Um, And, you know, the whole thing was super scary. And then they started showing me pictures of Peter with um, Harold and his cronies from college and asking me if Peter was gay, and just all different things. So the police are now interrogating Franny about Peter's sexuality? I'm like, no, he wasn't gay. Those are his friends. But they were, you know, they were cops. They were coming from a different place, you know. It's like guys in a picture together with their arms around each other, they're gay. He was a flirt, we know. Here's Ann Ramis. She's talking with Alan Sachs. I mean, okay, so that's what I'm saying that he was a flirt, right? Okay. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, he was, and that he was gay. He was mischievous, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he ever had any male any experiences with male, but I know he certainly wasn't gay, you know, exclusively. Right. Here's Stephanie Mendez reading from LA Weekly again. According to the article, the cops zeroed in on Peter's lifestyle right away. The basic lines they wanted to know were what kind of nightclubs Peter frequented, what kind of people he hung out with. 
they were looking for that underside nightlife aspect. Look, this was the early 80s, the Reagan era, the beginning of the AIDS crisis. Maybe the cops were inclined to look at being gay as somehow subversive or suspect. And certainly, the cops had their stink eye on the punk scene. You're not blaming what happened to that girl on music. Don't underestimate this particular kind of music, Quince. You tell a kid, a vulnerable kid, over and over again that life isn't worth living, that violence is its own reward, and you add to it the kind of intensity that this music has, and you just might convince her. This is a clip from an 80s crime drama called Quincy M.E. In this episode, a kid gets murdered while slam dancing at a punk club. Let me take you down to one of these clubs. You've got to see it with your own eyes to believe it, Quince. I've seen children come off that dance floor with crushed ribs and bloody faces, like soldiers fighting some kind of insane war. You're not really saying that music can kill, are you? Yes, I am. I believe that the music I heard is a killer. It's a killer of hope. It's a killer of spirit. The music I heard said that life was cheap and that murder and suicide was okay. That's just a TV show. But it tells you something about punk's reputation at the time. Punk was counterculture. And counterculture is always going to stir up the mainstream tight asses. So maybe that's why the cops zeroed in on Peter's lifestyle when interviewing Franny. Maybe they thought Peter got mixed up in the wrong scene and paid the price. But there was something else that may have influenced the cops' behavior that day. Location, location, location. Here's Stephanie Mendez reading again from an L.A. Weekly story about Peter's death. Peter Taylor, who lived with Ivers and Jim Tucker in the loft, says, I think the police handled the whole thing in a pretty strange fashion. They didn't seem too concerned. I guess this area is a real hotbed of murder activity. Peter lived just off of Skid Row, and that made it a lot easier for the police to dismiss his death. In 1982... Around the time New Wave Theater got picked up by USA Network, Peter moved out of his Laurel Canyon house and into a downtown loft. Here's Russell Buddy Helm. He played music with Peter. He desperately wanted to come downtown and get a loft. And I said, no, Peter, you're not wired for it. You're from Harvard. You know, you got a degree in dead languages. No. If you're driving a, a ragtop, you know, Alfa Romeo, you know, you should not be in downtown L.A. Actually, it wasn't an Alfa. Peter was driving a shitty Fiat, but Russell's point still stands. Anyway, in Peter's eyes, the benefits of living downtown greatly outweighed the risks. The the atmosphere and the feeling, it was like anything can happen. That's Stephen Seemeyer, an artist who lived downtown at the same time as Peter. If I was doing a performance piece, if I was going to be at 2nd and Alameda doing a performance in a building in an old warehouse... I would call 15 people, and those 15 people would call 15 people. And we'd do hand flyers, and we'd post them up in the areas, you know, all around downtown. And then you'd go and you'd do your performance, and like two or 300 people would show up. If you can make your rent in one or two days, then that means the whole rest of the month you're in your studio making art. Amazingly enough, you could actually make that work financially back then. I had one painting studio down there that was 10,000 square feet. My rent for that 10,000 square foot studio was $75 a month. What I remember about the loft, it was a very sort of classic 
downtown LA loft at that point. And there was like a bedroom sort of area. There were a lot of musical instruments and microphones set up. That's Violet Ramis, Harold and Anne's daughter. There was maybe some kind of kitchen, but it was just like, you know, anybody could go there and do any art they wanted and people were like lying on some pillows over here there was like a little yoga meditation area over there the loft is 6,000 square feet there are some common areas and Peter has his own private space where he sleeps I mean it was sort of like if you could empty out your creative brain and make it into a physical living space I mean it was kind of like the perfect artist loft The space may have been perfect, but the location wasn't for everyone. Going back for decades, Skid Row has been ground zero for homelessness in Los Angeles. Here's Gary Blasey. He's a lawyer who's been advocating for the residents of Skid Row for more than 40 years. Skid Row was really sort of created in a political compromise in the in the late 70s under what was called a containment plan. If you wanted to open a service for unhoused people or anything like that, it really could only be in Skid Row. So basically, the number of people on the streets really exploded in between 82 and 84. So you have an area filled with thousands of unhoused people. And unfortunately, it means that it was a place often ignored by the cops. Sort of in the culture of L.A., there was this, this, there's this really nasty, scary underbelly of L.A. And so it was, and I think it really disrupted the 1950s white picket fence suburban concept of L.A. I don't think the Skid Row Stabber, the Skid Row Slasher, those were not stories that got picked up. The Skid Row Stabber and the Skid Row Slasher are serial killers who operated in the 1970s. Together, they killed at least 20 people, but they were only two of the serial killers operating in L.A. The Hillside Strangler, the Sunset Strip Killer, and the Freeway Killer. L.A. was the serial killer capital of the world at this time. There have been enough bodies found over a wide enough area to strongly suggest more than one killer. But police say they really don't know. In Los Angeles, a killer the police are calling the Hillside Strangler has murdered 10 young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highways. Today, the police found another, number 11, they think. One of the serial killers who roamed around in the early 80s was Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. He killed at least 13 people. Serial killers often targeted people the police didn't care about. Sex workers, gay men cruising, vulnerable people. Young women, particularly prostitutes, are widely known as the serial killer's most likely target. Yet with all the attention to female victims, the public sometimes forgets that more than a third of all those murdered are male. Listen, we're not saying Peter was killed by a serial killer. As far as we know, there's no evidence of that. What we're saying is that the police may have perceived Peter, a guy who wears pink sequin jackets and lives near Skid Row, as just another statistic of L.A. crime. 
he could have been an easy target for the bad guys. After a brief investigation, the cops pushed Peter's case aside without ever charging a suspect or establishing what exactly happened. Here's Ann Ramis. She's talking with Alan Sachs. But this seemed like they weren't really interested. The police. The police. They didn't want to deal with it. They still don't. Why? It's a question we keep asking ourselves. The day Peter was killed, we were just processing the shock of it all. But after things calmed down, after the chaos subsided, there was something else we all had to do. We had to say goodbye. But even as people were mourning, they were also starting to wonder, was Peter's killer walking among us? Everybody was just sort of looking for answers. And, and what was weird was everybody was pointing fingers in the, in the other direction. The movie people thought the punks did it. The punks thought that the movie people did it. It was just fucking crazy. I was so confused at what was going on because, you know, the way it turns out is you're sitting there going like, who killed my best friend? Next time on Peter and the Acid King, we pause to mourn Peter and the vibrant scene that faded away with him. Peter and the Acid King is based on interviews recorded and researched by Alan Sachs. It's produced by Imagine Audio, Alan Sachs Productions, and Awfully Nice for iHeartMedia. I'm your host, Penelope Spheris. The series is written by Caitlin Fontana. Peter and the Acid King is produced by Amber Von Schassen. The senior producer is Caitlin Fontana. And the supervising producer is John Asante. Our project manager is Katie Hodges. Our executive producers are Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Cara Welker, Nathan Clokey, Alan Sachs, Jesse Burton, and Katie Hodges. The associate producers are Laura Schwartz, Dylan Canrich, and Chris Statue. Co-producer on behalf of Shout Studios, Bob Emmer. Sound design and mix by Evan Arnett. Fact-checking by Katherine Barner. Original music composed by Alloy Tracks. Music clearances by Barbara Hall. Voiceover recording by Voice Tracks West. Show artwork by Michael Deere. Special thanks to Annette Van Duren. Thank you for listening. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., 
And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 